and welcome. I'm Laura Briggs with the Vegan Fitness Runner podcast, where I'll be talking all things running, health and fitness, and what it means to be an active vegan. Jay Grady is co-host of the popular Trail and Error podcast, a proud vegan, fellow Dragon's Back participant, ultra runner, body mechanic, and all-round nice guy. He joins me today on the podcast. Jay, I've been really looking forward to talking to you because we met on the Dragon's Back race. I saw that you had a tattoo that said vegan and I knew we'd get along. (laughs) Shall we talk a little bit about that run and what it meant to you? Oh, crikey. I didn't know we were getting therapy as well. Um... (laughs) All comes with the package. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, Dragon's Back. What a beast. Mm, Yeah. We chose a good year, didn't we? Yeah, didn't we just? Didn't we just? Bit hot. Yeah. <laughs> a bit toasty. Um and and yeah, just what a oh, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a monster of oh, as the name implies, a, a monster of a race and and would have been extremely tough even without the UK's hottest week of the year. Um never mind with it. And yeah, I mean, well, thrown together through adversity in a way, isn't it? You kind of, we, we all got the chance to know each other a little bit through dropping to the hatchling and maybe had a little bit of more of a social experience than we would have otherwise done. So, you know, small blessings and all that. You're totally right. I think if I had, well, firstly, I don't think I could have completed the dragon, certainly not in those circumstances, as we've seen. But if I had been pushing myself day after day in that heat, over that terrain, I'd have broken myself. I wouldn't have had any time for socialising. But what the hatchling presented was time to connect with other runners and a little bit of reassessing what we wanted from that run, I think. I think you had to. I think the minute that the the finish is gone, you have to... I mean, we were lucky, weren't we? We had the option of the hatchling in all its glory, Um, a fully-fledged version of the, the course. But under our own steam, not without the time constraints, because obviously race logistics are what they are, but we got to maybe choose the highlights of the race that we would like to see and, and learn more about camp life. Certainly for me, that became the priority. Run the bits that I wanted to run that were, you know, iconic, um, but still get to learn camp in my own time and, and perfect that side of it. I just think it, it was a, it is a unique race, and it certainly offered a unique perspective of it for us as hatchlings. You know, so I thought for sure. I mean, I was told, you know, that this well, by Shane actually that this isn't a running race. This isn't about just the running. This is about so much mm. more, and I think that became evident, didn't it, on that week? It was about kind of changing tactics and adversity. It's about you know, camp organization. It's about, you know, mental attitude. It's, it's so many things. It's not just about being able to tackle that run physically. Would you agree? Well, there were some, and I'm not including me in this, there were some awesome runners this year wandering around camp initially as well, when they dropped from the main race, looking a little bit forlorn and, and people I'm going to class. And again, not myself, but people you would look at and go, they're a good runner. You know, the physique, the the steely square jaw, you know, um, the, the men too, just looking really quite focused on 
being runners. And then you look around and you go, crikey, they're in the same boat as me. This, this, this must be such um, a leveler of, of runners. You know, it mm. just, just it, it's, it's, well, to quote Shane again, then it's an adventure, isn't it? It, it really was. And actually what blew my mind is the end of day one, which was particularly brutal and, you know, baptism of fire, quite literally, it, it just, it, it blew my mind how many great runners, like you've just described, kind of either just dropped out after that day or were wandering around thinking, what the hell just happened to me? Like they, they some of them looked in a really bad way. I mean, the heat just had an effect on people that they weren't anticipating, I guess. And for me, a real shock was, you know, the winner of the Cape Roth Ultra, Graham Walton, Mm -hmm. day one, he completed. He was five hours behind the leader. And he just said to me, just don't think I can carry on, you know. And and that was really sad um, for me to see him make that decision. But it, it was the right call for him. He didn't feel that he could press through those six days in in those conditions um and it made me feel like oh hang on <laughs> maybe i should be here maybe it's okay for me to be here because i don't well, consider myself you know that that level of runner it, it just it had all the elements i mean I, i've gone over this race as we all probably have with a fine tooth comb at times and gone wonder where it went wrong and and i just i honestly think it was in those conditions over that terrain with the race parameters as they are, it was flat out just too much for me that day on day one. Cause I pulled at the uh, Penny Pass so at the foot of uh, the climb, climb to Cribgok and I made it by the skin of my teeth. I hauled my ass up and over and, and down the other side and um, made the cut. And then I fried myself and I knew that I had, I had heat stroke, I had the early signs of heat stroke and it was like, oh, you know what, I couldn't have got here without doing this, but this is the situation I find myself in. So there's no, I can't, I can't second guess it. I can't make any other choices. I can't push any harder. I can't run any faster. It is just literally what it is. And you do the first 18 miles of this unacclimatized in 30 degree heat to get to your first water stop. I mean, there are other races that I've done that are hotter, but they have, you know, they're, they're your typical one two day ultras and they've got a checkpoint every five or 10 miles and they, they help you through it. And, and this race isn't like that. And I don't think it should be like that. I think it's, that's, that's its unique element is it's toughness. And it, and, and in those conditions, I I couldn't go at the speed that I needed to do to cover it. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I've made my peace with that. I just couldn't, I haven't made any errors. I haven't not, you know, I've trained hard enough. I've done everything that I needed to do. It, it, it just, it was too much. So what can you do? Well, for you and what, 140 odd others, because let's face mm. it, there was a massive drop down to the hatchling, which took the race organisers by surprise, for sure, um, <laughs> as well as us. Um, and suddenly we were in a massive, you know, group of people doing something entirely different, but challenging. My God, wasn't it challenging? And uh. I... You know, I, I feel when I listen to you now, I always feel like you're kind of looking back on it like, you know, we've been through some kind of wartime experience or something. It's like, oh my God, Trauma. the things we saw, you know. You know, yeah. And, and you know, you see people who, yeah, you, externally you look at them and you think, you're a 
good runner and and look at the state of you you're you're trashed by this and 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 on the opposite end of the scale you see some of the the people who were still in the race and at the front of the pack looking maybe not after day 1 but it later in the race still looking amazingly fresh and capable and you just have to kind of go with it don't you and you just go this is me this is my experience and this is their experience but they're very very different and and i think one of the key things on that race was there was no i i certainly didn't feel like there was any separation between the people doing the full thing and the hatchling we all you know we all looked around each other and understood what everyone was going through and there was definitely still a camaraderie in camp there wasn't like a a grouping of competitive and non-competitive it just seemed like we were all in it at different levels, but we were all in it. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, my tent mates were, I think six of them completed the the full course. Uh, you know, they were an incredible international athletes and mm. I felt like an interloper. I felt like I should not be there. And, you know, come day three, four, they were looking at me and they were saying, you are doing this, Laura, this is incredible. And God, what a boost that gives you mm. when you think that, Everybody here, we're all, we're kind of all equal, you know. We are. We're all doing the same thing. We're all trying to get to Cardiff, however that might be. Um, and it was really humbling for me, and possibly a lesson in saying no. That's enough. Do you feel like you learnt lessons off the back of it? Oh crikey, yeah. I mean, I've got three. I'm I'm going back in 2025 to do it again, and I've got my three takeaways from it, which are improve navigation, become even fitter and start rock climbing. <laughs> <laughs> Will you be doing it in uh, hot climates as well? well that's the thing. That might help. <laughs> what, what, practicing the hot climates. Well, yeah. you could do all that and then you could get hit by a blizzard. It's Wales in September. So That's the kind of joy of the race, isn't it? You yeah. actually just don't know what you're going to be hit with. Well, look at everyone this year and I felt so sorry for you guys. You were all up there blasting through snowdonia in wind and rain and blizz not blizzards but you know blustery conditions yeah. and then you rock up on the sunday and we're all stood in like camp the in, in conway getting sunburned yeah like what the feck yeah in fact there was a lovely australian girl who obviously come over to wales Oh, is that Paloma? Rest, um, uh, Philadelphia. Philadelphia, Philly. that was it. Yeah, yeah. So she she basically come to escape the searing heat of Oz, um, thinking that, you know, <laughs> Wales was a, a sure thing. And then just, you know, said, I've just paid to come all this way and run and flip in heat wave. <laughs> Where's the justice? Um, she also did amazingly well. Listen, you, you have, you, you host a podcast yourself, Trail and Error. A co-host, yeah. You co-host, yeah, with Tris Stevenson. Now, mm -hmm. he's a very different runner to you, isn't he? You guys maybe approach things differently. And Tris actually completed the, the full dragon and did really well. Um, do you think you complement each other because of that? On the podcast or running? <laughs> Generally, just, you know, the podcast. I mean, you've got you've to have different takes on things, haven't you? Well, we are extremely different. And, and yes, that does give us uh, two perspectives. Um, we, when we're both looking at things in very different ways, Tris is extremely um, studious and analytical. And I'm not 
seat in my pants, but I'm not to the same level that Tris does things. And that's that's just Tris. That's how he's been through, you know, at least all his professional life and, and running life. You know, he's, he's relatively new to ultras, um, maybe four years in now. Um, but he came, his first 100 miler was the arc of attrition in 2020 and he came third. So that's just insane. That's amazing, isn't it? Well, you yeah, such a hard race and to podium on, on your first go. And he told, I asked him a couple of days before what he thought, you know, it's 20, you know, it's 103 miles, mate. What do you think you can do it in? Sub, yeah, sub 28, sub 20, anywhere. I think I can do sub 24. And I remember thinking, wow, that's, that's, that's big. That's a big thing that is because Kim Collison had only just done it in like 22 hours. Yeah, so he, he, he smashed us. I mean, he, was, he I think twisted it faster than Kim, I think. I could be wrong, but I think he did. And then he went back and did it again and came second to Mark Derbyshire in a time of 20 hours and one minute. So, he, yeah, just an amazing runner, an amazing runner, but puts the time and effort in, undoubtedly, and hates running hills. Hates Which running hills. Which is just incredible given how well he did at Dragon's Back. Yeah. Um, he did actually tell me that the heat was really getting to him. Um, so, you know, even even the best runners aren't immune from the heat. <laughs> I think they suffer in a different way. That's the, that's the thing. And and the, the good thing about trail running is that even the elites will turn around and they'll look at, you know, uh, they'll look at someone like myself and go, you know, you're out there doing the same distances, but your races are totally different, but no less hard. You know, typically I am out there um, for much longer. Tris did the yeah, Tris did the arc in twenty hours one minute. I was recovering from COVID the last time I ran it, so it took me thirty, nearly thirty five hours. Hmm. That's nearly fifteen hours longer than than he was out there. He he was home and in bed, and I was still you know coming around Land's End. I think. So, and 15 hours is a long time to be running. Let's be clear. You yeah, know, never so, mind 35. To have an extra, <laughs> an extra 15 is, that's some serious time on your feet, isn't it? And and that, as you say, has a, a huge effect on a runner. And that's that's massive to be to be out for that long. And it, Incredible. And it, it just gives us that perspective when we're discussing things from, from very different ends. I mean, I'm not, that was a, a particularly tough race for me through the illness stuff, but and I'm normally mid-pack to maybe three quarters of the way down the field. Whereas Tris will always, if he can deliver, will always be at the front end. So we get to discuss races in very different ways. And we both like different kind of things as well. I'm, I'm a massive fan of mountains and for various reasons, feeling small in nature, being probably the top of the list there and, and knowing your place in the world and, and in nature anyway. And, and he loves track and flat things and, and what he would call pure running mm. uh, where he just has to focus on form rather than the technical elements it's a shame he's good at both in terms of he only loves one if he were to commit himself to mountains I think he would you know make a massive impact on that world but he doesn't enjoy it as much for sure I mean he he really would um, it's it's so interesting isn't it how differently people look at running and you know, I see uh, from your Instagram, you know, you're you're in Cornwall and you're running around and you're really embracing that beautiful scenery and that hill, hilly kind of environment. Um, is that what gives you the most pleasure, just getting out in nature? 
with in terms of your running? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm very lucky to run where I run. It makes training easy um, for motivation. But even, I mean, I, I live uh, on uh, sort of halfway down the peninsula. Um, and from, from where I am, it's six miles of trail to the north coast and roughly six miles of trail to the south coast. And I'm, I'm right on, you know, 50 odd miles of inland trail as well. So I'm sport for choice. So if I want to head out to the coast for a long run, I, I can run out to the coast on trail pretty much, turn left or right and have, you know, a hundred miles in either direction. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unique. So, and I don't always run on the, the coast path, you know, sometimes, especially in the summer, it can get a little bit um, busy and, and, and you end up yielding to or, or having to pass walkers a lot and stuff like that. And that's fine. Uh, we all share it. Um, so quite often I'll just, for convenience, I'll just head inland from where I am and use some of the, because Cornwall is, is crisscrossed with uh, post-industrial landscapes from its mining heritage. And so there are so many footpaths. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous how many footpaths we have down here that you can just, you can run for 20 miles within, a, you know, 10 miles of my house and never use the same trail twice. And you can just crisscross and crisscross and crisscross. So partly it's getting out in nature. Um, partly it's, if I go inland in the winter, I've got solitude as well, e even in a, you know, uh, the most crowded part of Cornwall, if you like. Um, and we have a couple of towns mm. that are close to a small town. So, but you go out in these places and it's busier these days for sure, there's more trail runners. When I started 10 years ago, was it 20, 10, 10 years ago, um, I'd go running with a backpack on my back and, and I'd, I think people thought I was lost or something <laughs> or, or late for a train. Um, why are you running with a backpack on? And and now you go running, if you don't see someone with a backpack on, it's weird. There's so many <laughs> runners, which is wonderful, but I can still escape all that and find solitude. And then you can go for social run with friends and everyone can access the same areas it's just a wonderful place to run and so i am i i am in absolute awe of people that live in urban environments that train for ultras because they put in some amazingly what i would class dull mileage and yet they get up and do it and that is for me i've got the easy life i, I can go out and you know immediately be surrounded by nature straight out my front door and some people have to plod through streets and street, you know hour after hour and day after day how they motivate themselves that is that is the good stuff you know i've got the easy life but you know you could say some people would really not enjoy that level of solitude that you have you go out of your front door and you probably don't see anybody else for an awfully long time on your runs some people find that quite difficult don't they um, well, one side of it is um, it's very difficult, and, and we may, I might get corrected on this, but um, it, it, in the more remote environments, when I'm going out and I'm putting a head torch on and I'm running for four hours or something like that in, in the dark on my own, that might not feel safe for some people, either through gender or personal experience or whatever. I, I'm lucky that I'm I'm okay with that. And normally because I'm looking like this bearded, snorting ginger thing with a, <laughs> with a, a sun attached to his head. Um, so people just don't know what I am, maybe. Um, 
the only time I got freaked out recently was, was last year, I think. I, I came home via a route that I hadn't run for a while and I ended up um, running through a field of head-high corn in, in the fog. Ooh. That was a little freaky. That sounds creepy. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I definitely put down a PB over that mile. <laughs> There's um, a lot to be said for fear. <laughs> it, it was, and it was like, screw my heart rate training. I don't want to die here. Yeah. So, but normally, yeah, I just go out, and and I have that. I'm, I'm very, yeah. The point I'm making is that I, I, I'm lucky that I have that as well, and and that's not available to everyone. For you know, the society that we live in is not always safe. And so I, I, I have that as well. So mm. again, wonderfully lucky. Um, and, and I always think about the people that maybe don't have that luxury and how hard it is for them to train. I've got it easy, basically. Oh. What was your catalyst for first getting out there and going on a run, Jay? I walked a pilgrimage route with my wife just after we got married. Um, and we walked from uh, a place called Oviedo, which for Formula One fans is the birthplace of um, Fernando Alonso. And we walked from a, a route called the Camino Primitivo, which is one of the old pilgrim routes to Santiago de Compostela in northern northwest Spain. So we walked 240 miles in 11 wow. days. Wow. And when I got to the end of that, um, uh, we, we, we were in the queue for the plane and it's quite a small airport. So it's one of the old ones where you walk up the ramp and ahead of me was a lady who, who had the, the shell of the, the Peregrino, the, the, the pilgrims on her backpack, but her backpack was tiny. And I asked her, she'd, have you just walked? Cause my backpack was huge. And the, as we were traveling to the airport, this, this old Spanish chap walked past my, my like 60, 70 liter pack. And he just dropped this in, in perfect English. And I wasn't sure if he was being literal or metaphorical, but he said, the people with the biggest backpacks carry the most problems. Oh, and wow. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. What? what? And before I could look around, he'd gone. It was like, did it really happen? Did I like, imagine this person? Because he definitely said it to me, but then he was gone. And I thought, that is deep, dude. Um, and then I met this lady on the steps to the plane who had this tiny backpack. And so I asked her if she'd, walked the Camino and she said, no, we ran it in five days. Wow. Boom. Wow. You <laughs> ran that in five days. You, you can run this. What? And, and that just, and then I got home and I remember going, right, okay, 240 miles. Where is that? And as the crow flies, it just happens to be um, Regent's Park in London. Wow. From, from my house. But if you go by road, it's Reading. Which was not inspiring. Sorry for everyone in Reading. No. Um, but um, so, and, and, and Regent's Park's a little bit more. But still, that's the distance that I just walked. And I thought, crikey, if I've walked it, then why can't I run it? And that, that was the catalyst in, in, in a long answer to a short question. But that's what got me into the ultras. And then, then I ran my first marathon on my own. I just went out and I'd got to 20 miles and I thought, I can definitely add another six. But my mistake, I added an extra seven. And then I ran from a place called Padstow on one of the old saints ways that I'd previously walked in training for this uh, pilgrimage thing. Um, I, walked, I ran 28 miles to a place called Foy. Um, and again, I went, oh, wow, I just did that. I thought that was impossible, but I just did it. So what's next? And then there was a race called the Classic Quarter, which goes from the southernmost point of Cornwall, or the UK actually, uh, the Lizard 
uh, Lizard Peninsula, and it runs around a thing called Mounts Bay to Land's End, which is, of course, the most westerly part of mainland UK. So that's a, 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 a an amazing route, and, and anybody that wants to do that, it's a couple of races, the Traverse and Classic Quarter both cover that ground. And so I did that, and, and, and again, it's like, I remember when I first did it, and I remember going, I was... Uh, it's like it's 44 miles and it's 7,000 feet of climb, which was huge to me. And yeah, you kind of, it's, you do these things and then you look backwards and you go, well, I certainly do. And anyway, I look backwards and I go, oh, I thought you had to be really quite special to do that. But then I've done it. So it can't be that bad. And then you, you go, right, well, what's the next thing? And what's the next thing? And what's the next thing? And I've kind of topped out. I'm going to go back to Chamonix next year and do um, either TDS or UTMB probably, but that'll be my last, I think, big single day race maybe. I can't really think of any that I want to do. And then I really think after Dragon's Back, the multi-stage thing is possibly where I want to be, both organised and <laughs> disorganised, unorganised, um, self-driven. Um so yeah, that that's how it came to be. Just not knowing when to say stop. In Forrest Gump, when he ran through the the stadium with when he was a football player in college, they had a big sign that said "Stop Forrest," and nobody's ever had that sign that said "Stop Jay." Not um, yet, no. So, uh, yeah, uh, maybe Shane's done it, but um... <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Actually, you kind of half answered it there. In that, you know, what what do you see as the next thing is is there ever going to be a run that's going to be the one that you say right that's it now or do you think inherently as ultra runners you are always looking for the next challenge the next bigger thing the next harder thing is that just kind of inbuilt into us for some for sure i think it's you have i i identified in myself a, a tendency to i i i was turning running at one point, which was my stress relief. Running was becoming a stress. I was fretting if I didn't get out. And and luckily I'd had a friend years and years ago who told me to identify the things that you do for fun and to make sure that they stay fun. And, um, and so I realized that running was becoming a, a, an addictive element in my life. And, and one of my personality traits is that I hate being played. And I felt like I was being tricked by running. So I, I stopped running for a little while until I could put it in the right perspective. And I was very lucky um, to be able to do that. And, and so what that gave me is this, I feel that running is part of my life, but it's not my whole life. And so I don't feel like I need to endlessly push myself into I would definitely would have done at one point just gone further and further and further but I've realized that it has to be fun and certain elements of running can be maybe not give me the right return on the investment that I make in it and you've only got so many circuits of the sun so time is precious and, and so I invest my time more wisely now that's just so poignant actually it's um it's so easy isn't it to kind of get swept up in it you made you made me laugh a bit when you said that you know you felt like running was trying to control you um like taking over your life a bit and for many it, you can see it can't you it does actually um so being able to make that clear distinction of 
you know, why am I running? What is the purpose? What is, what am I getting out of it? To, to distinctly say, I'm just doing it for fun because I enjoy it and not to be pressurized by it. It's really important, isn't it? And not always that easy. Well, the organized runs, if you put into perspective what a race is, it's having to prepare your body and all of the stuff that goes around it to perform on a date that's been set in a calendar, not by you. Yeah. You're not in control of when the race starts. It's, it's, it's set by somebody else and you have to turn up and you have to perform. And so that creates an artificial pressure that, you know, if you, if you wake up in the morning, I mean, the arc thing that I did a few years ago, it was, it was a bit daft to run it three weeks after COVID. <laughs> it was a bit daft, but I trained for two years because of COVID blocking out the previous year where I was in peak form. I thought, oh, screw you. I'm just going to go out and do it. And it's going to be a really hard day. And so long as my chest holds out and luckily the COVID hadn't hit my chest, which might've been a different story if it had, I just thought, what have I got to lose? You know, it's going to be a really tough day, but so long as I'm fit and able, just go and do it. And if that had happened, if somebody had turned around and said, we're doing this, I don't know, organized mates run a social run of a hundred miles, I'd go, you know, I've just had COVID three weeks ago. I don't yeah. think I, I can do that. Um, so I probably wouldn't. But because it's a race, you have to turn up. And so if you can, that, that's the artificial side of running, racing. It's, it's not normal. It's, it's not what really running is about. That's the point <laughs> I'm trying to make, I guess. Whereas training, if it's just running, then it's fun. If most of the time you spend preparing for a race is fun, then the race is just a test at the end of it all to see how you how well you did. But it doesn't really matter. Running doesn't pay my mortgage. Um, my life doesn't depend on it. And so if you can put it in the right perspective of, you, you, A, I have to enjoy the training for it. Yeah? yeah. It, it has to be fun. You spend so many hours training for these things. If it's not fun, and, and my, my wife, who is much cleverer than me, um, turned around one day, I said, I have, I, I, what did I say? I said, I have, to, I have to go out for, I have to go do a long run later. And she said, you don't. And I said, no, I do. <laughs> and our perspectives were very different because I was thinking, well, if I want to do this race, I, I have to go out. And she kept saying it. And I, I said, I have to go. She said, you don't have to. I said, no, I do have to. Thinking that she wasn't understanding, not understanding that she was much more clever um, in that moment anyway. And so um, I said, I have to. And she said, no, you don't. Try, stop saying you have to do it. Do you, do you want to do it? I said, of course I do. She said, well, try saying I have to, because what you're saying is coming across in a very negative way. And it, and what that does is it, it, it infuses into your brain that the, it, it's a chore. Mm -hmm. Do you enjoy going out running? Yes, I do. Right. Well then try saying I want to, because if you, if you take any negative or not negative aspect, but something that's more mundane in life, say, um, the washing up, um, cutting the grass, whatever it is. If you flip, I have to into, I want to, and understand why you want to do it. Why do you want to cut the grass? Well, I want the garden to look nice and tidy. Why do you want to do the washing up? Because then I've got plates to eat off. You know, if you flip the, I have to into the, I want to category, suddenly you've taken away the negativity and that you know, upside down emoji face or upside down smile emoji face, you know, you, you've, you've taken it and you've gone, no, I want to do that. I want to go out for a long training run. Well, why do you want to go out? Because it's going to help me achieve my goal of this race day thing that I'm doing. 
So you can take any I have to. If you say I have to, stop and think, why is there an I want to in there somewhere? And then you can go, oh, yeah, all right. So it's not such a big chore. I really do. And it's such an important thing because it just changes your mentality if you do it right. Your wife is really smart because actually it's a very simple fix, isn't it? And, your God, the amount of times I say, oh, I have to go out for a run, have to go out for a run. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually only say I have to go out for a run if I'm training for a specific race, if there's something mm-hmm. in the diary that I'm training towards. If I don't have anything in the calendar, I'm going out for a run. I want to go out for a run. It's yeah. very different. And it is like we're forcing this pressure on ourselves sometimes. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I'm going to have to think about what I say now when I head out the door. I it's definitely really want annoying. to go I'm for sorry. a run. <laughs> <laughs> I want to escape from everybody for, you know, however many hours I'm going. <laughs> it's a powerful tool. It really is. Um, Jay, let's talk a little bit about veganism and how uh, you kind of chose that that way of life and what it means to you Mm. Um, veganism I was vegetarian from the age of 31 to 41 I think it was Um, and that came about as most of us did back then, I guess, through the animal uh, welfare side of things. I watched a documentary just through chance. Um, and it was based around a, 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 basically a giant abattoir in Texas. And it was such a simple bit of cinematography that caught my eye. There was a, a time-lapse camera set on this this valley, which at the centre of was this giant abattoir, like a like an aircraft production facility, this vast, vast metal structure. And they filmed it over 24 hours. And from almost the four points of the compass was an almost endless line of articulated lorries bringing in livestock and taking out dead bits of animals. And it was just the scale of it. And I came away from watching that film and I, and I went into the supermarket, I remember a couple of days later, and I walked down the aisle and I saw, even though I was vegetarian, I, I saw these lines of animals that that were in plastic packages on the the side, and and you know the the parts of animals that were all chopped up. And I th- suddenly thought, for the first time on the scale of it, and I thought, Jesus, this is one of five supermarkets in this town. The next town over has a few supermarkets, and then think about all the supermarkets in the UK. And suddenly the scale of the slaughter hit me. And I just remember thinking, oh, this is abhorrent, isn't it? This is really, really vast. And what you see in an individual animal is replicated billions of times across the planet. Because not just this country, then you like on this, it's overwhelming. It's like trying to count stars. You suddenly go, oh shit, I can't calculate this anymore. It's, it's too vast to even think of. And so that really drove home my vegetarianism and, and embedded it. And then um, fast forward um, 10 years, and my wife, um, who we've already established, is far superior in intellect to me. Um, <laughs> suddenly, um, I'm just grateful she takes pity and, and, and guides me through life. Um, 
she she said uh, I'm um my wife's a person of action and um she was having uh she'd been looking at animal welfare stuff and she was also vegetarian and um had been vegetarian for longer than me we were both vegetarians when we met and um she said I I'm so upset at the way that we treat animals I I can't be part of this vegetarian thing anymore I'm going to go vegan and to my shame my everlasting shame I remember thinking that she was going one step too far extreme why would you do this and 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 as again much to my um embarrassment I I kind of I remember thinking she's going to um grow her armpit hair which she's well entitled to do if she wants to it's her body um uh, but she's this is my stereotypical view of a <laughs> vegan at that time she's going to burr her bras and wear hemp mm-hmm. that was my view at that time and 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 probably driven by media and all the other things that i'd seen in my life um that was what i thought vegan was um and she, she didn't do any of those things but she could have done if she wanted to and, and i would have still backed her um but i thought wow so over the course of the next year, she left uh, a few articles in magazines open around the house. So a bit like Inception, um, <laughs> I, w- I was given these ideas. And, and when we were together, uh, we were eating vegan. And if I was, I, was, um, I was traveling a lot at the time, so I would eat vegetarian when I was away. And, um, and then I read a few books around running and veganism that, that, that changed my life the first one was um born to run by chris mcdougall yep brilliant book. um which introduced me to mr scott jurek um and then i thought oh scott jurek eat and run Let, mm-hmm. let's find out more about mr jurek so then i, I read eat and run and i thought oh this is really interesting and then um i read the first edition of um rich roll's autobiography finding ultra and I say the first edition because he's, he's sanitized it since with, with subsequent releases. And I think that uh, Rich Roll, if you're listening, shouldn't have done that, dude. Uh, you were cool enough. Um, and I read Rich Roll's book and, and his story was so similar to my own, given, you know, I wasn't an almost an Olympic athlete, but we were of the same age and, and going through that same point of life when he discovered veganism through his wife, plant-based, he will call it always but um vegan um and so i thought well actually now i can see a body of evidence that's saying not only uh will veganism not stop me running it might actually make me a better runner so um yeah i took the plunge and and went vegan and we doubled down on it from that point and uh i've never looked back and and a few years later i got a, a hoofinger vegan work of art on my leg uh, which stops me. I mean, the common joke is, isn't it? How 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 do you know someone's vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. you. Well, I don't even have to open my mouth. Um, it's, yeah, well, I spotted it. <laughs> <laughs> and normally I run in compression cuffs, so nobody sees that either. I'm not embarrassed by it or ashamed in any way. I think it's a wonderful bit of art. It took a long time to design. Um, a very talented artist locally for me that designed it. It's all the, I don't know if you actually saw it, but the letters are formed. The word vegan is formed by animals and, and, and plants making up the letters. That's right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's very intricate piece of art and, um, very proud of it, but yeah, it does, it does, it saves me having to say it, you know? 
Yeah, it does. It it's it's brilliant. And so when when was it that you actually went vegan? How many years is is it now? Oh, it is vegan? now um, ten years. Ten years. Mm. Okay. Wow. And so many people I've spoken to who are vegan, not one of them has said, "Oh, I wish I hadn't." You know, I wish I hadn't done they it. They probably or, say the opposite, right? They say they wish they'd done it sooner. I wish I'd done it sooner. Yeah. I wish I'd never had to eat meat. You know, I wish I'd never had to be part of that system. And it's you saying earlier on about being tricked by running. I feel like I've been tricked, you know, by the system mm. into eating meat and dairy produce. Right? Yeah. And that's what I really hate, you know, and I look at everybody else that's not vegan now and I think, oh, I want you to see it for what it is. You know, you're all being fooled. <laughs> it's so polarizing though, because there's a part of hum the human nature that really doesn't like being told what to do. I think it's yep. called the law of psychological reactance. And if you're told not to do something, we kind you of want it. to do it. Yeah. We don't <laughs> like being told. And once you're past the age of, uh, well, probably six in our household, well, you, you kind of, you, you know what you want to do and you're strong-willed. And um, I think some people see it as a battle of self-determination. You know, even if they know something is, you know, quote unquote, good for you, right for you, better for the planet. The fact that somebody is making them feel bad about their choices makes them stick to their choices even more. And so I think one of the things of being vegan that's so important is uh, a lot of people think that when you're vegan, you're trying to show that you are superior to them in your choices and lifestyle. And the whole, you know, wokerati, tofu eating, liberal left class thing, you know, the polarization, which is media driven anyway. I'm starting to sound like Dale Vince now. Um, <laughs> love Dale Vince, by the way. Um, and and what it does, actually, I think the statement that I'm making through being vegan is that I'm not elite. Actually, it's the exact opposite. I don't feel like I am any more important than any other being on the planet, not just humans, but I don't think my place in the world is any more important than the smallest bug. What makes me more important than anything? Anything, Everything has a right to live in nature and you know there are carniv carnivorous parts of the food chain that's what it is but if you have the choice as a human not to eat other sentient beings then you should probably make that choice not to do it because there's no physical reason and and, and that's the beautiful thing i, I was sent a, an instagram private message from a, a, a runner not I mean last year um and and it started off with something along the lines of um why do you feel that you have to call yourself vegan runner because if I put myself down as a meat runner I'd probably get loads and loads of abuse so why do you feel that you need to throw it out there that you're a runner? why can't you just be a runner and my initial reaction was you cheeky little shit <laughs> How dare you? And then, I, you know, what would that achieve? What would a response from me of that nature do, apart from polarise each other even more? So I sat down and I wrote a really long response, basically saying, um, look, mate, the only reason I do it really is because I've understood that I can do this. It's a choice I've made and I can be a runner and do it to a 
good standard, you know, not an amazing standard, but I can do it to a good standard and do big challenges on a plant-based diet. I'm, I'm, I'm calling myself on Instagram, vegan runner, whatever it is, uh, vegan runner in Kerno, which is uh, Cornish uh, for Cornwall. So all that does is it highlights the fact to other people that the things that I do, the challenges that I undertake successfully mostly are possible on a plant-based diet, on a vegan diet. So that's that's the reason I do it. Not because I, I particularly want attention or anything like that. I'm not trying to say I'm better or different. It's simply to show it's a choice that is viable. And that's all it is. And I think that's what we're all doing by going out doing these things. The vegan runner movement, um, you know, is is fantastic and, and it's out there in your face that that people are there and, and and people can make those choices and still do a bit like the books did for me. It can show the viability of a diet that doesn't involve animals and you can still go out and do these cool big challenges. It's a bit of everyday activism, really, isn't it? It's it's, you know, we might not have, you know, millions of followers, we might not be famous, but we're doing what we do in our own little way. And it's about making those small changes and hoping that you do have a what we would perceive a very positive influence on other people. Um, you know, if you just turned one head and somebody else became vegan because they'd seen your profile or, you know, watched you do a run, then that's a win, surely. Yeah. You you can only really influence the square meter around you. You can you can make the choices that you make. You can't force anybody to make the you know quote unquote right choice. You can only show that it's viable. And and for me, if I'm running around throwing vitriolic statements around about eating meat or farming animals or doing all this lot, you only drive the division deeper. It's much better to, for my mind to say the things that we have in common. Maybe it's sport, maybe it's that we like something else. And, and I'm not a two-headed beast who you know wants to burn his bras and grow his arm hair. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's just, it doesn't define me. It's a huge part of who I am. Um, but I would still like to, you know, be myself and just be that, just show the viability, I guess. Yeah. Just show that it's normal to do this. It doesn't, you don't have to be special or, um, different. Yeah. You're just a normal person who's made this choice and, and therefore that, that choice and those options are open to everyone. Nothing special, hundred percent, nothing special. Do you feel like we all have a responsibility now to make these changes not just for obviously for the animals and for health but for the wider climate issues that we're facing the fact that we're screwing our planet over something royal you know isn't it time we all just kind of got to grips with the fact that we need to make dietary changes we need to make lifestyle changes shouldn't we all be shouting a bit louder about this now i think you run the risk sometimes of, um, you have to be very careful with the messaging. I think if you are too, if we're all, if we're all too militant, um, then it becomes polarizing again and you, you get people's backs up and the people that were sat on the borderline that might not want to, they might be the only person in their family that feels that way. It, it, it's, sh- yeah. It's a difficult question, isn't it? Or oh, it's a different and difficult answer. I think 
we do need to make the changes, obviously, I think. Um, animal agriculture, uh, the amount of times I've had people tell me how, you know, how the Amazon is being cut down for my, um, my tofu. And I'm like, dude, 93% <laughs> of that tofu, uh, that soya is going to feed your burger. Animal feed. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's, that's all it's, I mean, it's a media war, isn't it? That's the other thing. It's, there's such, I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist now, but there are such, um, <laughs> there are very, um, powerful industries that have very deep pockets that want you to carry on doing what you do in terms of eating animals and becoming poorly. I'm going to get into the whole UPF thing, uh, ultra processed food thing where y- you get poorly, but then you need farmer to fix you. Um, and then you can carry on eating their products, but you, you're getting poorly, but farmer will fix you. And it's a very cruel and cynical um, cycle of events where yeah, you're fed animals that have been kept in such bad conditions. And then everybody, of course, wheels out the, the organic um, chicken argument, but we all know that they're not all organic animals and they don't have a, a wonderful pasteurized life. Um, and so, yeah, you do get this argument of um, we can't, we can't all do that and it's not viable and it's not, you know, you need to be earning a million pounds to be a vegan and all this lot. And it takes time. So many arguments to it. There's, there's a wonderful program on Netflix a minute at the moment about um, blue zones. And that's well worth watching um, about the, the, the clusters of people around the world who are centenarians who are fit and healthy and living an active life. And they're not, uh, some of them are vegan, some of them aren't, but it's an interesting um take on life and how simple life can be and how you don't have to have ultra processed foods to survive. And yeah, I don't know. I've rambled there a bit. We've, we've been tricked, haven't we? You see, <laughs> we've been tricked by, Re- by the well, world. People like to make money and it's hard to make money from a product if it's a carrot. Yeah. Whereas if you take an animal and you disguise it by changing its shape as it hits your plate and you've added something to it, maybe you smoked it or added a hickory sauce. Well, <laughs> Now you've created something that maybe somebody doesn't know how to do, and, and now you can add your value and mark it up. It's hard to do that with tomato. Very, very good point. I'm going to ask you two questions. To leave. <laughs> not to leave, not yet. Hold fire. Probably quite broad questions, but one, how would you, why should somebody become a vegan? Two, why should somebody take up running? Hmm. Um, why should somebody become a vegan? Well, it's not like you're going to suddenly become protein deficient and all your muscles are going to wither. Um, why should some, <sighs> that's a difficult one. Good question. I like this one. Yeah. Oh, no, I mean, Sorry. I think my personal opinion is they should become vegan because it has a lighter footprint on the planet and it's kinder and, and you can run past the field of livestock if they're lucky enough to be in a field and have a completely clear conscience the amount of livestock i've apologized to as i've run past them um that i'm not like everyone and i'm really sorry for my species being such a bunch of shits to you and your kin and i'm sure a lot of vegans have done that um so yeah it it eases my conscience um it makes me feel good i'm into my 50s now um, and I'm still feeling like I'm 23. 
By the way, I would never have had you down as being in your 50s. You oh. look way younger than that. I'm going to oh, just say you. that for everyone that well, maybe hasn't hasn't th- seen you. Thanks to radio. <laughs> <laughs> thanks to radio, you look great. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm 52 next year. So, um, but I still feel, yeah, I don't, I, you know, I get up with energy in the morning. I, 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 I don't suffer too many illnesses, touch wood. Um, you know, I, I, I do all right. Um, and I've, I've reconnected with food. That's the other big thing about veganism. I, I understand that most of my nutrients on the planet that, that I intake come through my mouth or my skin. So sunlight and everything else, but everything else goes through my mouth. And if I'm putting good fuel in, then I'll get good things out. And and that's how I view it. And and that's another um, growing understanding of what I put in my mouth. Like I say, we've just declared um, ultra processed foods persona non grata in our house. But the preparation of food is now not a chore because it's become elevated again. It's not something that, again, not something I have to do, something I want to do. I want to make nice. It's not something that I see as an inconvenience food. Food is something that gives me everything I need. Why would it be an inconvenience? So I can rush into the front room and watch TV. You know, what, what, what is more important? If you're stood around the kitchen having a conversation while you make food, you know, why are we so busy? What's so important that that's not a big thing anymore? It's a really important time. And, and, and again, when you look at this, this Blue Zone documentary, very easy to find. I can't remember the name of it, but Google will do it for you. Um, one of the big things is about the preparation of food and the fact that it is a, a bit of quality time and it's exercise as well. You know, for, for in part, a lot of the world, they're preparing food from base ingredients but yeah, it just, it's made me appreciate the importance of what I put into my mouth and understanding what I put in there has a direct effect on how I perform as, a, as an athlete, quote unquote athlete. So you're, you're in more control as a vegan as well. I mean, don't get me wrong. Donuts are vegan. Chips are vegan. Um, you can be an unhealthy vegan if you choose to be. You don't have to be a pious runner like me. Um, but yeah. It's it's it reconnects you with with the basic elements of human need. So That's such a brilliant answer, Ooh. which brings us nicely on to for somebody that maybe is thinking about going running but not quite sure why should people run? Well, it's a form of movement that well, it's faster than walking, isn't it? Let's face it. Um, <laughs> it is fact. <laughs> it really is. Um, there are certain times on the dragon back when it wasn't, but, but mostly um, it's faster than walk. So why would you run? Well, it's many things to many people, I guess. Well, let's flip it on its head. Why do I run? Why do I run? One of the reasons I run is that it, it does keep me fit and healthy. I delved into, I read a, a wonderful book uh, by a guy called Mark Bubbs, Professor Mark Bubbs, called Peak. And he subsequently wrote Peak 40, which is another good book. But through that, I discovered something called heart rate variability training, HRV. And, and I spoke to a guy on, on the Trailer Narrow podcast called Marco Altini, who is a world expert on heart rates and heart rate monitors. So he advises people like Garmin and Polar and Koros and all of those companies on what they should be looking for with heart rate monitors. And so 
Marco wrote a brilliant, well, co-wrote a brilliant app called HRV for Training. There we go. Marco needs to send me some royalties. Um, <laughs> and, and what this does every day is it takes, um, it, it measures my heart rate through, through my phone. So it, it's a visual um, thing using the camera and the light, and it, it takes my heart rate and my heart rate variability. Now, heart rate variability is the timing between your beats. And counterintuitively, the more random your heartbeat, uh, the healthier you are. So if it's metronomic, you, it's signs that your body's under stress. Ooh, if it's more random, know that. Mm, there you go. Um, so I, I, every morning when I wake up, um, I, I take a measurement on my phone before I do anything. And, and actually quite uh, funnily in, in, in the notes for when you start using this stuff, it says before you like listen to the news or check social media, which would elevate your heart rate. So do these things before you do any of the social media stuff. So I, I check my heart rate and then I, I quickly go through a, a very brief questionnaire, which is all sliders. Uh, how do you feel today? How do you think your sleep was? Are you stressed? Are you traveling? Did you have a little alcohol? No alcohol, too much alcohol. Um, how do you feel? How motivated are you to train? It sucks in my, my training peaks or Strava data and, and populates that information as well. And then based on all of those readings, it gives me a traffic light system of, of uh, red, don't train, yellow, limit your intensity, green, knock yourself out, sunshine. <laughs> and, and, and what that's done, a really unexpected side effect of that, and this is a very long-winded answer, sorry, but what it does is it, it's gamified my health and, and, and all the soft aspects of, of training that I need to focus on. So the three pillars of recovery, sleep, nutrition, and stress. Reduce stress, increase sleep quality, and watch your nutrition, eat well. So if I want to go off and do these big, big challenges, I can't do those things. I can't do my running unless I look after those things. So I have to look after the softer aspects of it. And so what it's done, what running has done for me is it's, it's given me accountability because if I want to go inside of an evening and, and sit down in the front room and eat a bucket of Pringles and watch crap on TV, I can. I'm an adult. I can do it if I want to, but I can't do that and go run over mountains or, or go out for a 20 miler or even a five miler, you know, whatever. It, it's all relative to where we are in our running journey, but I'm accountable because if, if, if I do all the bad things, I won't be able to do all the good things. So a real positive of running for me, and, and one of the reasons that my wife still thinks running is a good idea, is it keeps me fit and healthy. And, and in a way that I'm accountable that I wouldn't be otherwise. So that one of the things that running has given me is a, a reason and, and, and a real interesting aspect lately is, is the, uh, the biometric information we can extract from the human body. And I do it at a very low level. Obviously, if you're an athlete, you're pulling this data out at a much more intense and in-depth level. But from a very basic premise, I can look at my biometrics and understand how well I'm looking after myself. And because I'm slightly competitive, I want my light to be green every day. <laughs> and so I go to bed at a reasonable hour. I choose these days not to drink and I'm an exhaler. And so I used to have a very different lifestyle when I was in the Royal Navy, but I, I, I know the effect. I've seen the effect that drink has on my ability to train. So it's not that I don't necessarily want to drink or don't like drinking, but I don't want to waste a training day by, by recovery. Even if I'm not hungover, I'll see the data and what it can do to me. So I, I don't even want that to impact on me. I want to go out running. It makes me feel good. So 
yeah, running gives you an, a, a form of accountability and a way to measure your progress that we maybe don't have in other aspects of life. But the important thing is not to let it take over your life. You know, ha- keep a perspective on these things. Um, many people run for many reasons. People run maybe because they have a tendency to form addictions and, and it's a good addiction as opposed to substance abuse and things like that. Um, maybe they are leaving home because home may be not such a happy place and running gives them an escape. These are all really good reasons. Well, they're not really good reasons. They're really valid reasons for the individuals to go out and do these things. Um, but it's really important to understand that running isn't going to fix all your problems. It gives you some headspace and some things to, you know, some time to consider things, but you can't run away from your problems is, is guess what I'm saying? But it's a really, it's a really great way of clearing your head and being out outside and, and, and moving. Movement is so important for human form. It, it helps us with the lymphatic system. It moves waste out of the body through squeezing our lymph uh, up through the nodes into the glands and the cisterna chile and such. So we need to move. We're rewarded for movement with dopamine. The, the body dangles a carrot and, and gives us a nice pill of, of dopamine to say, well done, do it again sometime and we'll reward you again. So we're encouraged by our bodies to run, but it does give you that accountability. Even as adults, we need to be held accountable, don't we? And from that answer, I'm struggling to find any negatives with running, Jay, which is brilliant. <laughs> Listen, it's been it's been fascinating talking to you, actually, and to think that you started off with a pilgrimage and here you are now. I know. Looking up your next challenge and, and readying yourself for the dragon's back once again. Well, I've been speaking to young Ben Garrod about going back <laughs> and running that pilgrimage route. So um, watch this space. We we might be those people stood on the steps telling people we've just run it in five days and uh, launching the next generation of ultra runners. Who knows? I really look forward to hearing all about that, Jay. (laughs) Listen, it's been amazing talking to you. I wish you all the best. And whichever run you're doing next, I shall be following you eagerly. Oh, well, thank you for having me on. Thanks, Laura. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to leave a review for the Vegan Fitness Runner podcast. Please subscribe if you don't want to miss an episode and remember you can find out more about all my guests and further information on all the topics covered over on the website veganfitnessrunner.com. Thanks again and bye for now.